if culture isn't designed, culture designs itself. Mm. I and love it. Yeah, if, it, if you don't design it, it designs itself. And it's really challenging to undo. Welcome to Insert Human. This is a show that is not for everyone. It's for seekers, people like you, hopefully, who are searching for solutions to your problems, the world's problems, and everything in between. The conversations to come are going to show you how finding the truth of our humanity is the magic key to solving pretty much anything. Between my monologues, my dialogues with brilliant guests, and your good questions, you're going to learn how to insert human into everything, and in doing so, realize a better life and one day a better world. For those that don't know her, Sherry, she has had several titles in her career, Chief Strategy Officer, I think Chief People Officer. My view is she's sort of been this in this interesting space between brand and people, which I could argue is the only space to be in a company or any form of organization. But in terms of what she specifically has done, I found this this piece on a website. It wasn't on LinkedIn, it was something else. But let me just read part of it to you all. Sherry is often brought in to help owners, CEOs, and senior management make new ideas stick by crafting meaningful internal brand messages and people strategies that ultimately drive brand experience and result in profitability and enhanced equity. She's been referred to as the muse for the CEO. I just love that. Or another one is CEO whisperer with a talent for turning a conceptual vision into a workable practices and meaningful workplaces. Her work has ranged from long-term assignments with the Cosmopolitan Hotel and Resort in Vegas, Hilton Hotels. She did several of the Ian Schrager Hotels. She's worked with Chanel. I mean, it's a long list of blue chip brands that she has, has helped make more meaningful in the world. And the last thing I'll say before turning it over to Sherry is I believe, having run businesses for a chunk of my life, that culture is the only sustainable advantage. That this, this intersection between brand and people, brand and culture, or brand, people, and culture is actually where all the leverage is for any company today. That what you actually do is probably a commodity. That the way you do it as manifest through culture is the point of difference. And so, Sherry, thank you for, thank you for joining me. It's, it's great to see you again. And I'd love just to have you start by telling us a little bit about your background and how you, how you got to where you got. Well, thank you, Chris, for that nice introduction. It's looking forward to this conversation because culture, as you and I have discussed, is kind of where I, is my sweet spot. That's where I lo- love to work. And I got started in, in the business first with this interest I've always had in many aspects of the human experience. And in schools, was a behavioral scientist with a focus in anthropology, really trying to figure out how do communities form, how do cultures, are, how are cultures sustained, looking at uh, norms and rituals and, you know, what makes up a community. And that's kind of been the underpinning of that interest has been the underpinning for me in making my choices in my career. Early on in my career, I started in HR, and that gave me a unique perspective to see the whole and how the whole works and the different parts and how the parts fit together or don't fit together. And I enjoyed that aspect of kind of my first part in corporate America. But really what what I discovered 
was an aha moment early on in my career was that if culture isn't designed, culture designs itself. Mm. I love and it. Yeah, if, it, if you don't design it, it designs itself. And it's really challenging to undo. Right. And uh, I, you know, I think both you and I have had people come to us saying, hey, can you make me a better culture? You're like, uh. Yeah, and, and I've gone in and I've helped companies start with, you know, really candidly toxic cultures. Right. And how do you extract that? And how do you get to a better story? And as you said, I, most of my career has been at this integrating strategy and brand building through that intersection of culture, talent, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. and brand. And that's where I've, I've navigated. And one of the things that I've, that I loved in the Cosmopolitan project, which you mentioned, was the opportunity to create a new culture. This was a blank yeah. sheet of paper. The CEO had a strong vision, a strong idea, but we had to build the brand. We had to build the culture and the opportunity. A new, brand new hotel, brand new project. Brand new hotel, 50 yard line on the strip. And the idea was let's create something new and different that matters. Something that is not Vegas hasn't seen before, not a themed, not just a luxury, but really how do we define a modern luxury that attracts people to Vegas that would not normally be attracted to Vegas and really making that a story worth telling. And that was a great opportunity to build from the ground up and not undo. Right, right. But it still was, you know, obviously quite challenging because often these CEOs that ask us to come in and help them with culture. They're just like, well, do your magic, make it happen, right? Well, there's there's a lot of hard work that goes on to make culture really stick and to make so, that. So give us a little, not a blow by blow, but how, so how did you respond? And, and I mean, that's a tall order going from a blank piece of paper to a modern luxury, profound culture. How'd you do it? Well, I mean, it was obviously a team of people that were coming together to do it, but specific to the areas that I was responsible for. You know, we had 5,000 employees we had to hire. And very early on in the design phase, we knew that words mattered and that our, the vocabulary that we were building and creating needed to be right. And so one, one of, an example of that was we had a leased building right on the side of a big highway in Las Vegas, and it said employment center. And we said, well, that's not what we're doing. We're not employing people to build an organization. We are attracting talent to create a community. And so we changed it to the talent center. And that was just, a, that helped the mind shift that started to help make sure that people weren't not coming with their biases of how to do it or married to a solution. But we were all coming together to say, okay, we're committed to fixing a problem or you know, creating this, right, right. but not married to a certain solution. You know, so, so just to interject something there, something you said earlier about your, your academic background and studying behavioral science and frankly, the complexities of people and, you know, why they do what they do and why they don't do what they should do. And this idea that words matter. I mean, I think for some percentage of people, they would say, well, what's the difference between the words of, you know, recruiting talent versus hiring people? Like, isn't that basically the same thing? And, and I think, I think well, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but no, actually, it, it's a very different thing, right? And, you know, meeting people where they are and respecting where they are versus treating them like a, 
a commodity effectively mm -hmm. uh, to do a job is a very different thing. Uh, again, not putting words in your mouth. Is that is that we were exactly we were looking for people that had talent and passion, not the skills to do the job. We were willing to train someone if they had the talent, the passion, the alignment with our values, could buy into the story that we wanted to tell. And that was the population that we wanted to attract to this community. And then, so that was more about fitting with the culture, fitting with the story, fitting with the value set, not necessarily matching skills to a job slot. Right. And so that, that really reversed the process for us. Instead of seeing if someone was going to be a good fit at the end of the discussion, we made that at the beginning of the discussion. Right. And if, and if you weren't going to buy into the story, if that wasn't part of your DNA and your interest, then we didn't move on. How many heated debates did it take to get the executive committee or the management team to agree to that strategy? Well, we had a CEO with a very strong and vision, and he was very visible. And I think that made a huge difference because there wasn't a lot of room left to, to argue. So okay. we had healthy debate. And then when we made a decision, we left that room and we moved on. And everyone was asked to cooperate with that decision. And not always be invited to collaborate on a decision, but to cooperate with the direction that the senior leader in that functional area was being asked to. Uh, to would you would you say a CEO of that I don't know. Level of commitment is a requirement of a cultural shift or a cultural makeover? Or I do. Yeah. I think that without that commitment, without that belief that it's a driver of brand equity, that it is about fueling the strategy, then you've got a task to be done. And it's generally delegated to a, a department, human resources, or someone's job to watch over culture, right. but it doesn't, it, it doesn't work that way for it to cascade down into the organization for everyone to really believe the story and feel that they understand their part in the story and to perform the story. You have to have the CEO representing that. And our, the CEO was very visible and asking the employees once they were hired for ideas, a real belief and great ideas come from anywhere. And every month had this session where he gave everyone almost like a shark tank. You have three minutes. You can tell us your story, the research you've done. We can ask some questions and we'll decide if that's an idea we want to actually implement. And if so, we're going to assign a senior executive to that idea so that you don't get stumble over any bureaucracy that might be in the system so we can really fast track it. And was that well attended, effective in terms of... Oh. Amazing. And the idea is coming from, you know, the front line and they have, they know they're right in front of the guests. They know what, what the solutions are. It's just about giving them access and a channel to express it. Uh, it, reminds, so, yeah. it reminds me of years ago, there's a book written called Unwritten Rules. I don't know if you ever read it, but um, it talks about the unwritten rules of organizations. But in the book, it also talks about where the power really is, that in most organizations, there's two power structures. There's the power as reflected in the org chart, you know, the traditional, the higher up you are, the more power you appear to have. But then there's another completely different view that, that there, are, there are a lot of people that have a lot of power that actually 
aren't high up in the organization, but they're on the front line. They know the customers. They know how things actually work and that they understand the business actually better than the senior executives who are quote unquote running it. I just, that stuck with me as, oh, I, you know, that makes perfect sense. Make perfect sense. And you know, something else about the, the words matter. We didn't call our employees employees. Early on, we had a big discussion about what would be the right terminology that would express what we're really expecting from this, you know, this community of workers. Employees certainly didn't seem to fit with modern luxury and what we were trying to create as new and different. Team members, we really weren't, we actually did not want these team concept of team against team. Staff certainly was a flat-footed example. So we came up with, as we were building this beautiful, beautiful property, this gorgeous design, she was the star. The Cosmopolitan was the star. And we had to give all of our guests a great experience with that star. And so we named our employees co-stars. There are 5,000 co-stars supporting the star. And what happened was we started referring to everyone, regardless of level, to your point, who has the power. You're first of all a co-star, then your functional title. So a co-star in the food and beverage, a co-star in the spa, a co-star in the casino, a co-star in the executive, mm-hmm. uh, on the executive team. But everyone was on the same level. And what that offered was just a transparency and I think a vulnerability that was rare 10 years ago. I think it's demanded now, but 10 years ago, I think that was uh, not necessarily a norm. Yeah. Think- a little bit more about that vulnerability word. It's one of my favorite words. What did that mean 10 years ago? Why was there? Well, I mean, it, it meant that as we were exploring building this new brand, we didn't have all the answers. So we, we took some bold moves and we admitted when a strategy that we were taking was not working or gaining the outcome that we were hoping for, we were bold enough and vulnerable enough to say, we need to change it. We need to shift. Um, and, I, and I think just expressing to all of the employees, we need your ideas. We don't have all the answers. We need your ideas. And the CEO and the executive team showing up to that conversation, not with a answer, right. but just with an ear to listen and a heart to listen. And it really was a head, heart, and gut game. I mean, there were times we just had to really react to our gut. And we sometimes we had to balance the, you know, the head, the, the operating practices mm-hmm. with some of the things we, our heart was saying we should try to do. So it was, a, it was an interesting, fast-moving process. And I think what grounded everybody was we were relentless about the story and the story was very clear and the values that were going to drive that story were non-negotiable. Everything else was up for grabs. Right. The other thing I think that is implied, which is important to call out is, um, or my sense of it is that it was a shared responsibility, that the creation of the story and with that, the, the enabling culture was not solely your responsibility, right? It, it sounds like it was shared by the management team or whatever that group of, of people. Is that, is that right? Right. And I, I think it was also, again, the CEO expressing how important the internal story, the ins, what we called inside out. We, we had to create the story on the inside before it made sense to the marketplace. 
Right. And so we developed this methodology in alignment with marketing and everyone else. But you know, not everyone was initially on board with some of the new practices that we were suggesting or the hiring practice where we started with fit first rather than match. But one of the one of the senior executives who was running F and B at the time said, I've I've been in Vegas my entire life. I've opened up three hotels. Sherry, just let me hire my staff the way I always hire my staff. And I asked him to come along, just try it for a certain period of time. If it wasn't working for him, let's rethink it. And he came back to me after that agreed time span and said, this is the best team I have ever, ever engaged. And he then became my, you know, the biggest advocate for, for the process. But, you know, clearly people came in with biases and practices that they thought would work because it's worked before for them. And we were up against a time frame that was very unreasonable to be hiring 5,000 people in a very short period of time and then giving them the story, engaging them to perform it, et cetera. That was a tall order. So the shortcut sometimes seemed to be tempting, but we stayed the course. You and I have also talked about a turnaround case, a, a changing of a culture, which is probably both similar and very different. So I'd love to talk more about that. But before I do, you know, I, I get a lot of feedback from the Insert Human audience asking for, you know, can you ask your guests to help us with, you know, some tips, some to-dos, you know, three things I would do if I were creating a culture from scratch. Any any other, th- you know, words of wisdom for the audience or, around you know, the cosmopolitan thing and, and what you would absolutely do if you were if you were tasked with doing something similar again? Well, I, I go back to be deliberate about designing. And that's that's hard work. That, you know, requires alignment with the team. It requires ensuring that the strategy, the vision is, is very clear and clarifying, clarifying, clarifying. I don't think there can be enough of that. And the CEO constantly repeating what really matters. And I, I think words, words do matter and not adopting what your competitor uses and making sure that your story comes to life with the vocabulary that you're sharing and then ensuring that every employee has a chance to become fluent in that language, that nothing is left to just an executive team or you know the managers or the supervisors. Everyone's working off the same story. Yeah. Everyone has that. Everyone has the same language. Right. And the last question there is, is around metrics, performance. Were there, were there n- new conversations about how to measure the consequence of what you're working on, whether that was, have we achieved modern luxury? Have we achieved, you know, a different level of employee engagement or co-star engagement? Was that part of the equation or not necessarily? I mean, it, it was, it wasn't a necessarily a, a goal of ours. We wanted to make sure that the, the, the story resonated with the marketplace. And we're going to see that in the general financial right. metrics of RevPAR. And, but we came out of the gate with a tremendous amount of momentum. And that the competition couldn't really, <laughs> couldn't really catch with us. So we became a workplace, a desired workplace. And then we got, of course, the awards that validated that. But that wasn't necessarily something we were achieving or trying to achieve or checking off boxes. Are we doing all of these 
we kind of abandoned that, to be honest with you, because we just thought if we stick to our strategy and we create opportunities for innovation and allowing the voice of the co-stars to be heard, we will evolve something that we could, you know, not necessarily achieve, uh, you know, put to that kind of a, a, a goal, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. Uh, and it's okay, so let's switch, switch gears and talk about a turnaround and how different. I imagine that's a bit messier, <laughs> you know? I, I, w- I would say that it's, it may be messier, but it's not easier. I mean, it's, it's, not, har- it's not harder. Okay, okay, so tell us, tell us about this particular case. Well, there, I mean, I've done a lot more of the turnaround or can you come in and help us? Uh, start to uh, like each other more, or merge two different cultures, and live under the same roof. Uh, I, get, I, get the, uh, I get the, can you make our culture more innovative? That's what's right. my... Uh... This one case, it's an Italian resort, absolutely gorgeous part of Italy, but a remote region, and was really asked to come in and see if we couldn't solidify the story and become and for, for the company to be the gold standard for, his, for the expansion. And it was a unique situation because it was family-owned. The CEO had a very, very strong vision. And unfortunately, that vision wasn't coming to life because everyone was you know, telling their own story. So it started with getting clarity from the CEO on what is the story you want to tell. And... It was a unique place because the employees had incredible pride about the land, the history, the people, the, the sea, the food, their heritage. And that was what the CEO wanted the story to be about, is that you can't get this anywhere else. You have to go there to experience that kind of magic. And so it was really taking a look at, okay, what is, we've got the place, we've got the players, now how do we create this magic? And culture was really the bridge between what the employees had to do and what what the CEO vision and the promise was. And so we really looked at extracting what was good and what was working and we used that as the baseline, not all the things that were, that were not working. And we extracted, and then from there we did, you know, we innovated. But for example, you know, this family passion that built this company, trying to translate that to all of these employees when you're not part of the family mm-hmm. was, was hard work, was difficult. But what we did was we said, we were very clear on, it's not just your job to be a housekeeper. You have accountability to something bigger. And we made that bigger something worth belonging to. We made that bigger something meaningful. And that was about really leveraging their pride for the place that they had the advantage of being born in, growing up in, and wanting to live in. Um, and it is a very, very special place. And so how does that specialness come to life for you know, worldwide, you know, these travelers and many, many celebrities, many prince, queens visit this place. And how do you make that 
local loyal loyalist energy really translate to something that is magical for those for those guests. That was the work we did by giving the employees the opportunity to tell their story. And I have to ask a uh, tactical question. How did you actually do that with the employees? And let me elaborate. It actually relates to the whole topic of quality and a lot of corporations, when um, they decide they need to, do, need to do a better job with equality, they hire somebody to, to do diversity training. And they put all, you know, they put the senior people or the managers through three days of diversity training. And then they check the box and they, they somehow think magically, use your magic word, that will change the nature of the organization. And it never does. So my question is, how did you approach the inculcation of the family story into the employees and the employee's own story into the family story? Like mechanistically, how exactly that wasn't like a day of training, I don't assume. You know, what, no. what, what, what did you do over what period of time to shift that, that understanding? Well, it was really giving the employees an, a really clear understanding of what we expect and that there is this responsibility piece. They have to do their job, but there's also this accountability piece. And here's how that job fits into the bigger picture. And so it was engaging them in what our guests go through, actually giving them an experience like our guests and making sure that they understood all of the, the aspects of, of magic possibility through a guest experience. And we said, you're putting on a performance. Every day you're putting on a performance. So this is not just about doing a job. You're putting on, it's a show. And our guests are paying a lot of money, not just for great product and great service, they're paying for an experience that is actually a benefit that is a transformational benefit. Mm -hmm. They want something more. We're promising you can't get this anywhere else. So we have to give that to them, but it's intangible. So we gave our employees opportunities through workshops and, and you know, guided sessions. How do you bring this to life? And we did a lot of real play so that they came, they came up with ideas on how we could create a nowhere else experience, what happened was it was very clear that it was emerging from their own pride of place and their own pride of, of the people. And then we said, we're in this together. So if you come in with a, with a, a bad, you know, you're in a bad mood, you can't, you can't bring it to the show. We're all on, we're all on stage right. and we're performing together. And so that was, again, you know, there were some people that self-selected out of that because that wasn't what they signed up for. And there were other people that said, finally, finally, I get to express my passion for this place and I don't have to stick to a script. I can, you know, just stick to the story. So it was, it was and of course, then it's leadership alignment. Yeah. And we had to work through that. Some leaders were saying, you know, maybe, maybe that's needed in, at the front office, but finance doesn't need that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. You know, so we had to really create an, a, a, we're all in this together. And yeah. again, the CEO's voice, the CEO saying, this is what matters. This is what's going to drive our, our growth. This is what's going to create sustainability and, and making that real in, in meetings, in conversations, casual conversations and and throughout the hall. And then we changed practices. 
So no more performance reviews. We're going to have meaningful conversations. Hmm. Let's get rid of forms. Let's talk because our guests don't want forms. Our guests don't, don't, they are looking for that, mm-hmm. you know, make visible the invisible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What can we get here that we've never seen before? We've never experienced before. And how does that, how does that come to life? So we created also key strategic roles. Instead of a concierge type role, we created what we call local advisors. And that local advisor was someone who was a kind of assigned to you when you came to the resort. And he or she would be cultivating and curating your experience based on what, what you want to explore in the region, giving you ideas, and also possibly participating with you in those. For example, one of the local, I love this story, the, the local advisors was assigned to a prince came with his buddies for a golf weekend for a week, whatever. And the prince said, oh, listen, you know, can you give me a map for, you know, three mile run, different, different routes we could take. And also we really want to, we're interested in swimming in the sea. So can you tell us the best entry point for that? And blah, blah, blah. So what happened was the local advisor put all of this together. And then in conversation with the prince, said, hey, I'd be, I'd be happy to run with you. And there's also a couple of other routes we could, we could go that aren't on this map. And then we could end up at, this, at a great place to plunge into the sea. So that's what the local advisor did. Prince said, that's fabulous. So we've got, our, you know, we've got someone who's going to do it with us mm-hmm. and who knows it and who can, who can engage with the locals along the way. And that was... That's just an example of how that comes to life and how that pride emerges, you know, builds kind of the the bridge to those that haven't experienced this land and and the people. Well, it's interesting, you know, I'm comparing the the resort in Italy to the cosmopolitan story and two or three things pop out for me. One one is the idea of of throwing out convention, you know. Mm -hmm walking away from tried and true, we call them employees or we call them team members to calling them something completely different. The other is giving those employees, co-stars, voice. And I think in doing that, giving them the opportunity to be proud, right? I mean, in both, in both cases, that's effectively what you were able to accomplish. And I would think in a service environment, Pride has many wonderful, you know, derivative consequences, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, and also we, we created this act like an owner. Right. You know, what would you do if this was your, the guest in your, your own home? Right. And it's, you know, you don't point to the pool. You would say, let's go enjoy the pool. Right. And it was really giving, taking down a lot of those fences that were up Still having a framework, obviously, but giving them a lot of freedom within that framework. Yeah. And then, some, you know, there's some people that say, oh, well, then they're going to give away the shop. But if you hire people you trust and you nurture that relationship, you, you, you create reasons for that, for trust to be a strong cornerstone of, of, of you know, the employee-employer relationship. Right. And most often... The employee, the employee is not going to give away the shop. They're not going to comp a room when a room doesn't require to be comp. They'll, they'll do the right thing, 
99.9% of the time, I find, because yeah. they want to do the right thing and right. they know the guiding principles. If they know the guiding principles, then they can't really get off course. Yes, yeah, something that was shared with me a lot in my management journey was the idea that a lot of organizations punish the 99% because they don't trust 1% or something like that. That the idea that systems and policies and rules are created to control the outliers and in doing so you end up crushing the soul of the majority. And and I I, I think, you know, I think for organizations getting to trust as a as a uniform way of being, enabling enabling it you've got to be okay with a little bit of risk. You've got to be, you know, you can't guarantee that everything will be perfect, but by allowing it, I think you get a a far more productive and effective culture outcome, whatever, whatever that is. So let's talk about in the the few minutes that we have left. Those two cases were were a few years ago, you know, lots changed in the world or maybe not. What's your take today in terms of in terms of culture, in terms of this intersection between brand and strategy, you know, what today's employees are looking for in, in the environments that they work within? You know, what, what's, what's your view of, of what's going on today and how, if you were running a company or an organization, how you would approach approach it all? Well, I think I'm having lots of questions. Uh, and dialogue with clients who are, we're all grappling with what's the new now and how do we, how do we look at engagement? You know, when we're generally on Zoom calls uh, and everyone is now working from home, but there's a new era of leadership, I think that's emerging. That's actually really exciting. And we talked about that earlier where the CEO uh, being visible is, is a demand today, I think. I mean, the CEO is showing up and has to show his or her, her humanity. When you think about a Zoom call and you're on, the, on a Zoom call with the CEO, I was talking to a client about this the other day, everyone's in the same size box. You know, there's no one at the head of the table and everyone, it can be easily interrupted by the dog barking or you know, the uh, delivery person ringing the bell or whatever the case may be, we're all, and that, that level of humanity, I think is, is, is a good thing. And I think we are going to have an opportunity to reshape the relationship as a result. Yeah, but there are a lot of questions that we're, we're asking. I mean, can some of these bold practices that we put into place as a response to COVID, can those bold practices become our norm? Do they work? Do we have to do all of this planning before we respond? You know, everyone's talking about reimagining. You know, after we responded, now it's how do you return and reimagine? I'm not sure anyone is anxious to return. I, I think this notion of returning to normal is a distant notion. We're going to be wearing masks for, for some time. So I think it's how do we kind of reimagine a level of engagement and use those pride, part of community, being part of a greater good equation, vulnerability, leverage those differently and call them out in ways that through our practices and processes that might benefit and fuel a new outcome. But I, I think we're, we're in a, I've got to stay hopeful. 
<laughs> I, I've got to stay hopeful. Yeah. I mean, you and I talked at the beginning before we started the show about, um, you know, where we are today and, and this need for more humanity in every aspect of our society, not just the corporate sort of job part. And I think what's interesting about what you just said is the return to the, the old days, you know, eight months ago, whenever that was, I think more and more of us realize that those days were somewhat inhuman, that we were handcuffed to transaction volume, you know, just running as fast as we can to do everything we could, responding to, you know, constant demands 24-7, the seduction of consumerism, go, 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 dinner, 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 meeting, 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 email, email, email. And, you know, arguably for some of us, certainly not all of us, the benefit of COVID has been some time to reflect. And the volume and the intensity coming at us has lessened at least a little. And in that lessening created space for us to consider how can we how can we carry this newfound connection to self and to others out into the world back into the workforce i think your ceo example is a is a wonderful example of you know as a ceo i've, I've had to be vulnerable for the last six months because everybody's looking into my home i have no place to hide and now you know Theoretically, three months from now, I'm going to be going back into the tall building across the way. And how do I maintain that level of humanity, of access and vulnerability? And I, you know, I just go ahead. I think this renewed focus, I mean, this pause that you were talking about that COVID offered us has offered renewed focus on just that. How do we, how do we connect with each other? Are we connected with each other? And I think I was talking to a CEO last week who said, it's forced me to really look at what is the employee value proposition I'm offering? And is it good enough? And are we, am I understanding how people really want to contribute and really want to learn? And during this time, he was saying, I've learned that the way people want to contribute, we're not offering them channels to do that. So I think to your point, this getting connected, and I think that as we know, the millennial generation, they're not, they're not going to stay around for something that isn't meaningful. They're not going to stay around if they can't contribute their passion, their talent, and learn. Right. You know, I'm sure you know the Daniel Pink uh, mastery, autonomy, and purpose as the ultimate outcomes that a lot of employees seek you know, the ability to achieve mastery, to have autonomy and to connect to a sense of purpose. And I, I, you know, I think that's, I think that's pretty spot on, particularly among the millennials, but even the, the, the Gen Xers and hell, some of the boomers, I think that's the opportunity, maybe even the requirement. The question for the listeners is, is your company supporting that? You know, the other thing you just you just said, Sherry, that fits in with that is the CEO asking the question of, of not just what the value proposition is, but what do they want to learn? You know, and I, one of my views is many organizations don't understand that a central function of the organization is is teaching and learning, and I'm not talking about HR 
putting on training classes. I'm talking about the entire organization teaching and learning each other, learning from each other. And I, I guess it all sort of is a way of wrapping up, you know, culture historically has been, a, my view, has been viewed by many organizations as a thing. Like it's a check the box thing. And what you've shared with us today is it's not, it's not really a thing. It's kind of everything, right? Like no culture, what do you, what do you got, right? You, you know, and so if there's one sort of final bit of advice for the folks on the phone about how to, how to contribute more to an environment that, you know, enables the very best in people, like what would you, is it all about the CEO? Is it, is it, is there any, any like little tidbit that you think is sort of a linchpin or, or, or not, which is fine too. Anything to share there? Well, I, I think that you've got to have a story worth telling. And so if it's just about product, if it's just about service, if it isn't really, if you're not creating an opportunity for an experience to become the product for both the inside and the outside, for both the employee and, and the customer, I unfortunately, I think you, you've, got a, you've got a huge gap yeah. in sustainability and creating a sustainable platform. You know, one thing I was thinking about as, as you were talking about what's, what's next is, you know, I would encourage people to explore the functions that are typical in an organization. And are those still relevant? For example, does HR and marketing, hmm. is it better served for that to be blended? Is it better served for that to merge and be more about, I don't know, a chief community officer? Mm-hmm. Because to me, if you look at your inside, your inside and the culture design as internal marketing, you, I, I think you have a, a great opportunity to be looking at more aspects of what that means rather than just checking off a box. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And, you know, one of my expressions is that there's only one brand. Like this whole idea of there's an internal brand and an external brand. I'm like, "Eh, no, it it all has to line up. It all has to connect. And I think what you're proposing, while it sounds radical, actually makes a lot of sense. You know, combining the external communications function called marketing with the internal communications and call it product development function called HR or people development function, I think is a really, is a really logical, if radical idea. I, love I actually that. proposed it 10 years ago for the Cosmopolitan, but <laughs> didn't happen. It was a little too radical. A little too <laughs> radical, a little too much risk. So anyway, well, listen, I, I, we got to wrap up. Thank you so much for your insights and uh, amazing stories and really, I think, helpful stories for the listeners. You know, Sherry and I, again, just to reiterate, I think we both come from this place that it's it's about the people, stupid, like that any organization, service company, product company, B2B, B2C, whatever you do, that the way to create real, real, real impact, real leverage, real distinction is, is by getting closer to the truth of the people inside the organization to enable them to do the, you know, realize their full potential and achieve that level of pride and in doing so elevate the power, if you will, of the brand. So Sherry, again, thank you so much for joining me. I, I so appreciate it. I'm sure we'll be chatting soon and I'd love to have you back on the show in the not too distant future. Beautiful. Thank you, Chris. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening today. 
If you're in search of more opportunities to realize positive change in your life or work, and you find what I have to say helpful, you can always subscribe to my show, check out one of my new salons that are weekly virtual gatherings of like-minded folks. You can read some of my writings or just listen to one of the talks that I've given around the world over the last couple of years. And you can do it all at chriscolbert.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for my ongoing email updates. When you do, you'll receive a free copy of the first chapter of my about-to-be-published book, Technology is Dead. Again, it's all available at chriscolbert.com. Thanks again for listening today, and I look forward to connecting more in the days ahead.